Tonight we're going to be in the book of Philippians. And let me pray before we start. God, thank you for the stage you've given us, and uh, we thank you for uh, the privilege you have of coming together and to open your word and to study it. I ask that you would uh, help us to learn more about who you are, help us to have a greater understanding of Philippians and why it was written. And uh, God, we ask that you would just uh, speak to our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Philippians is known as the epistle of joy. Uh, you, hear, you see the word joy, rejoice. You see those words a lot in the book of uh, Philippians. But it's known as the epistle of joy. And it contains a message of long-suffering and joy in the face of persecution and hardship. It's written by Paul from prison. Uh, so we understand that uh, Paul, of all people, would understand this. He would understand what uh, the hardships that come for being a follower of Christ. And so he, uh, he knew firsthand, and so did these people, as well as, as what, it, what it would take, what it means to follow Christ. Um, so he was, in, he was in prison in Rome. Uh, this is what most people believe he was at Rome when he wrote this, uh, this letter. And he was waiting the outcome of an impending trial. So he was there. Uh, he was, they took pretty good care of him there. He had his own place in Rome and things like that. But he was still in chains. He was still a, he was still a prisoner. And he was awaiting this, this trial that would be coming at some point. Um, and so they believe that most people believe this was written while he was there, waiting for the final verdict on this case. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, tells us this, verses 20 through 26. <clears throat> Excuse me. Am I in the right place? Oh, there we go. It says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, uh, for they... Did I write? I may. Have, we'll just read and see where we get, see where we end up here. Um, I think I wrote the wrong verses down. Um, but it says, "For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know, Timothy's proven worth. How, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how things go for me." And so, yeah, these words are the right verses. But he's saying, I, I hope to send Timothy to you. Um, he says he's been a benefit to me. He's been a help to me. He's been a friend to me. And he says, I'm still kind of waiting to see. I don't, I don't know what the outcome of this is going to be. Uh, he didn't know. And so he's waiting for this trial that would be happening. And he says, I plan on sending these guys to you. And he's going to send a guy named Epaphroditus back to them. Um, you can go back and study and look at him at some point if you want. But uh, so he's waiting this trial, the outcome of this trial, because he doesn't really know exactly what's going to take place. Philippians is a thank you note to believers at Philippi for their help um, in his hour of need. They helped him financially. They encouraged him. Uh, they sent Epaphroditus to him to be an encouragement, to be a help, to send financial aid to him. And not only when he's in prison, but they had done this in the past as well. And so he had a really close relationship uh, with the people of Philippi. Uh, this book was written to convey Paul's love and gratitude for believers at Philippi and to exhort them to a lifestyle of unity, holiness, and joy. A lot of Paul's letters are written and there's a problem. There's a problem with the church and he's having to deal with. You, don't see, you see a little bit of that here, but there were no major problems that was going on here that he was having to deal with and be harsh to them about. Uh, he speaks a lot about rejoicing, being, uh, missing them, wanting to be with them. 
Um, he, he's excited about what God's doing in them. And, and so he's, uh, he's, he's talking to them as a, as a loving father almost, uh, missing his kids. And so this is uh, kind of the, uh, the mood of this letter. But as you read this letter, it becomes very evident that this may have been one of Paul's, at least was one of them, but it may have been the, uh, his favorite church of all. Uh, these people loved him, and he loved uh, them as well. So this is not a letter of rebuke, but it's one of thanks and encouragement. Uh, and he speaks to them about the facing of hardship um, and how the unity there is going to be very important when they do face that hardship. And so he speaks about that. But I want to go back to the book of Acts, so hold your place there. Go to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And this is uh, the birth of the, of the uh, Philippian church. <clears throat> Acts chapter 16, verse 6 is where we'll start. And we're going to read through verse 40, so bear with me here. But this is kind of the, the account of the birth of this church. So they went through the region of Phrygia in Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to uh, Messiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So they, Paul had a plan. Let me just stop there for a second. Paul had a plan. He said, I'm going to go from here. And then we're going to go over to these different places. And it says, but the spirit, of the, the spirit of Jesus said, no. I don't know what that looked like. I don't know what the roadblocks might have. I don't know if it was a word of, of God to him. But for whatever reason, he was told no. So they're passing by this place. They went down to Troas, verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen this vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace in uh, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a, and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath, the Sabbath day, we went out to the gate uh, to the riverside, where we supposed there'd be a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So Paul, it was his custom when he'd go into a new city <clears throat> to find their synagogue, and he would go and he'd, he'd start there. But there was not a synagogue. But they happened to find these women and so, who had come together for prayer, so he went and sat down, and they began to speak to them. Verse 14 says, One who heard, heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was, after she was baptized, uh, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me, be faithful to the Lord. Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were, as we were going to the place of prayer... We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to, proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she, this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having becoming greatly annoyed, which I find that funny, 
Having become greatly annoyed, he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But then her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw, threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke, woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are here. We are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, you and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them that, and he took them that same hour of night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into this, to his house and set food before them, and they rejoiced along the entire household that had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates and the police saying, let those men go. But the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have set, sent to let you go. Therefore come out and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do, not, and do they now, now throw us out secretly? He says, no, let them themselves come and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and took them out and asked them to leave the city. So... They went out of the prison, visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So that is the brief story from Acts about the birth of this church uh, of Philippi. And so it's really interesting. Paul, he had this plan. He had this plan. I'm going to go here, and I'm going to go here. He, he, he mapped out this, this, I guess, his journey he was going to be taking. But God had different plans, and he led him to Macedonia. He had this dream. And in this dream, this vision, there's a man from Macedonia who said, come to Macedonia, which is Philippi. And so Paul said, clearly this is God directing our path a different direction. So they went. Upon arriving, they met Lydia, who is a successful businesswoman. She was saved. Uh, when, when Paul was and Silas were teaching, she was saved. We see that Paul also cast out a demon out of a slave girl, and they wind up in jail because of it. They didn't care about this little slave girl. All they cared about was making money. And so they probably had nothing to do with her after that. I'm sure she was thrown out. But uh, he ends up in jail because of this. And it was in jail, so they just so happened to go to jail. What happens when they go to jail? The jailer gets saved. And so all this, and him and his household. And so here's what we have. We have the birth of this church in Philippi. So here's the charter members you have of Philippi. You have Lydia, who is a successful businesswoman. Maybe this little slave girl, because I'm sure her owners had no use for her anymore. 
So maybe you had this little demon-possessed, who was demon-possessed, slave girl, and a jailer in his family. Complete, every one of them, totally different. Totally different. Nothing, there's no similarities about them except they lived in the same city. They have nothing in common except Jesus Christ. And in Philippians, Paul speaks to them about remaining unified. And this is something that only God can do. This is something, it's not normal. It's not natural. People from different walks of life. And, you know, she was a successful businesswoman. He was a, you know, a tough, he's a, he's a tough, manly, burly man, you know. Uh, and then you have this little slave girl. And, and all in, everywhere in between, you got all these different kinds of people. And they're unified by Jesus Christ. And this church was born. And so this, was this, this is the account of how that happened. So go back to Philippians. Just wanted to give you a little background there. Philippians. We'll get, we'll get there here in just a second. But moving back over here to Philippians. Paul gives an update of himself, but mostly he's concerned with the proclamation of the gospel and the exaltation of Christ. Is that his whole, his whole point, his whole goal in life was to proclaim Christ and to exalt him or make much of him everywhere he went. You read in other books like in Corinthians where he says, We knew nothing among you except Christ in him crucified. This was their message, was Christ crucified, because this is the gospel message. And any time he went into a city, that's what, he, that's what they preached. And he was laser-focused on this goal and laser-focused on this message that they would speak everywhere they went. So he, he gives kind of an, this update on what's going on with him. Uh, but again, he's concerned with the proclamation of the gospel and exalting Christ uh, as, his, as, as our ultimate example. Uh, and it, we will read here in a minute. But Paul's main concern was the gospel being preached, no matter what happened to him. He said, what, whether I live, whether I die, doesn't really matter. All I want is the gospel to be preached. Uh, this was the attitude uh, that he had. He showed an overwhelming devotion to, to Christ as he preached unity, humility, and dependency to the Philippian church, exhorting them to have joy, both, have both uh, joy and suffering in service uh, to Christ. It's interesting. Let's go to uh, Philippians chapter 1. You're going to see Paul reaches many in the imperial guard of Caesar's household um, while he's in prison. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. And I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of my imprisonments is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict one, uh, thinking to afflict me in my own imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So even these who were speaking out of envy and selfish ambition were clearly preaching the gospel. He says, whether they do it for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, as long as the gospel's preached, I'm I'm happy. I'm happy. Uh, go to hold your place there and go to chapter four, verse twenty-one. 
It says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And so Paul was reaching a lot of people while he's in prison. He's reaching people there. Uh, do you see, see this pattern? Every time Paul's in prison, he continues to preach, preach Christ and to reach people. That's what happened to Philippi. You know, Paul and Silas there, they reached this jailer. He's in, the, he's in prison here, reaching the imperial guard. He's talking about even Caesar's household. Not Caesar himself, not the emperor himself, but those who are definitely associated with him would be included um, in this. So everywhere, every time Paul's in prison, God moves. God moves. God works. Uh, Skip Heitzig in his book, The Bible from 30,000 Feet, he says this. It says, Paul was in chains in Rome, but he also had a captive audience. And it says, literally, guards were chained to him in shifts throughout the day uh, for the gospel. So he had this captive audience. It said, God used his secret agent, Paul, to gain entry into the emperor's own household through Caesar's own secret service agents. Can you imagine being chained to, to the apostle Paul? So imagine that was your job, and you had to be chained to him. What a job. It says, think about the impact. He says, think about the impact this would make on your life. No wonder he, is, he was saying, hey, don't feel sorry for me. Some of these guys are coming to Christ. There are no prison walls God can, can't penetrate, no chains he can't break, whether you're an inmate, an addict, or an unhappy housewife. Martin Luther translated the Bible into German while he was in prison. John Bunyan wrote the Pilgrim's Progress while incarcerated. Paul wrote four letters with his arms shackled in prison fetters. Some of, the, some of your greatest work could take place now if you let God into that place of confinement and watch him work. I found that very, very interesting. But could you imagine being chained to Paul? He's like, hey, I'm going to write this letter. <laughs> Can we put that chain on my left hand because I need to write with my right hand? I don't know. But uh, they got to see this. They heard him talk. They, they saw his visitors. He had friends there uh, who could come and visit. And so they see all this, and there's no telling how many people he reached. When you're stuck with Paul for that many hours every day, um, you can't say you didn't know. <laughs> yet. But Because uh, you know Paul would talk to him. But how was Paul able to have this outlook? And it was his Christ-centered love for others despite the circumstances. Because his circumstances weren't great. And Paul's circumstances most of the time in his life, um, after he was converted, was not great. So I just want to talk about a couple of keys uh, to Philippians, a couple of key verses. Uh, Philippians 121. Let's go to Philippians 1. I just want to go through a couple things real quickly, and then I'm going to go through each chapter and break those chapters down. It's only four chapters, so it's not very long, so it won't take, shouldn't take too long to do that. But Philippians 1, verse 21, says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is how Paul saw life. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So for Paul, it's all good. He says, if I live... That's more, that's more work to do. That's more time. I'll keep, I'll keep proclaiming the gospel. People will keep coming to know the Lord. If I die, great. I'm in his presence. It's like for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this is his view on life. Go to Philippians chapter 4. 
verse 12. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry, abundance and need. So he's talking about being content. And we'll look at that a little more here in just a minute. But this is one of the key verses. So he's in prison. He says, I have learned to be content. I'm okay. Whether I have a lot or whether I don't have anything, I'm okay. Why? Because what was his outlook on life? For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. He's like, I am trusting my life to the hands of a loving father who loves me and cares for me. And one day, I'm going to spend eternity with him. So those are a couple of key verses. Key chapters in chap- is Philippians chapter 2. And it creates the great kenosis passage. And we'll, we'll read it here in just a minute, some of it. Um, but in the Greek, this word kenosis, this word means that Jesus emptied himself. When, when you read that he emptied himself. So it doesn't mean that he, was, that he ceased to be God. It does not mean that at all. But what it means is that Jesus emptied himself when he became human and he took on flesh while never ceasing to be God. He willingly gave up the benefits of God, such as the glory he shared with the Father before the foundation of the world. Uh, He laid that aside. He willingly did that. Uh, Being praised continually, uh, he, he laid that down. And also, and then he submitted to the Father's will. And he knew when he came what the Father's will is. He came to die. He knew this. He knew that's why he came. And so he submitted that to the Father's will uh, willingly. He willingly also took on human limitations. He entered into time. And it's hard for us to understand that, but he is outside of time. That God is outside of time. And he came and he subjected these human limitations. And time is is a very limited resource. And he came and he took on the limitation of, of time. Uh, he would get hungry. He'd get weary. He'd feel weak because he didn't have food or, or whatever. He experienced grief. He experienced rejection. He experiences everything that humans do. The emotions we feel, he, feel he's felt, he felt those things. He went through those things. And he did this willingly. This is all part of submitting to the Father's will. So hold your place there in Philippians and go to Isaiah chapter 53. talking about these limitations that Jesus willingly took upon himself. Isaiah 53, verse 1. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. So he was not like this amazingly good-looking guy. <laughs> he had nothing about his appearance that would draw people to him, is what Isaiah is telling us. It says that uh, he was, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet opened not his mouth. Like a lamb is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he is taken away. And as for his generation who, who considered that, it, that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he, made, although he had done no violence, there's no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of anguish of soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By the knowledge shall right, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him, him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressor transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is a prophecy of the suffering Christ. The suffering Christ. He came to die. And it says it was the will of the Father to crush him. To crush him. Jesus came. He willingly came knowing that was his plan. That was the plan. Knowing that's what he came to do. So this kenosis passage we mentioned, this emptying of himself, um, is one of several portraits of Christ in this epistle. In chapter 1, Paul sees Christ as his life. He says, for me to live is Christ. He was his reason for living. He was the one who kept, he was the source of life. Chapter 2, Christ, is, he modeled true humility. He says, let this mind be in you, which is also... In Christ Jesus, that's chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter 3 presents him as the one who will transform our lonely body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body. It's Jesus who does that. That's chapter 3, verse 21. When we're, when we're in heaven someday, this is what he's going to do. When he comes again and he brings all the, all the saints um, uh, to heaven, we will have a new body that's conformed to his glorious body, like his resurrected body. In chapter 4... He is the source of Paul's power over circumstances. Uh, chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You may see that verse and hear that verse used a lot. Um, but he's talking specifically here about being content. That I, can, I, can, I can be content with much. I can be content with nothing by, the, by Christ who strengthens me. And so it is in chapter 4, Christ is the one who strengthens him. So I want to take a minute here and go through each of the chapters. Uh, we'll, we'll move through here pretty quickly. So go ahead and go to uh, Philippians chapter 1. And we're just going to go through them. Some of this we'll read, some of it we won't. But chapter 1. We see a few things. First thing we see is in is verses 3 through 11. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. And we see a prayer on the behalf of the Philippian church. So he's praying specifically 
for them. And these are the, some of the things that he's praying. First of all, uh, he, this, this is a prayer of joy and thanksgiving for them. He's thanking God for them. And when he thinks about them, it brings him great joy. So he's, this is a prayer, a joyful and, and prayer of thanksgiving. Again, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, that when we come before God in prayer, it needs, we need to come before him with a thankful attitude. And so even when times are difficult, we come before him, we present our request, and we'll read this, we'll look at this here in a minute, with thanksgiving. And that is, that is, one, of the thing, that is one of the secrets to having peace in our life is being thankful. And so he's in prison thanking God for these people. He prays that their love would abound. He prays that their knowledge and discernment would increase. They, that they'd be people who love, that they'd be people who, uh, who have discernment and, and knowledge and that they would uh, be a light in their community, that they would reach people uh, with the gospel. He prays that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. What's the fruit of righteousness? Well, it's obedience. Is that I've, I've been saved God has saved me. He's forgiven me of my sin. I now belong to him. Now I live a life of obedience. So fruit of righteousness is living out this new nature that you've been given. Living it out. And so he prays that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That they would do what's right. Ultimately what he's praying for is that they would become more Christ-like. They become more like Christ. That is God's plan for your life, by the way is that you'd be conformed to the image of his son. Romans chapter 8 speaks that uh, speaks to that point. You know the verse that you hear a lot that all things work together for good to those who know God, those who are called according to his purpose. Um, right right in that right in that area, you can go back and read it. Then he begins to talk about being being conformed into the image of his son. So how can all things work together for the, for good? Again, for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. How can that happen? Well, because he's using these things to make you more like him. This is his goal for our life. And sometimes we're hard-headed and it takes, it, it's not an easy lesson. But he can use all things to make us more like Christ. Ultimately, that's what he's praying for. Another thing we see in chapter 1 is Paul had kind of an update on his condition. That's in verses 12 through 25. We've already talked about that a little bit. But what he's saying is guards are being saved. People are being saved. It's okay. It's a good thing I'm in prison. He says there's, there's brothers. He said we are Christian brothers who are now bold to speak without fear. His chains emboldened other believers to speak without fear. Kind of like when we hear stories of some of our uh, pastors or missionaries that we support and things like that. It emboldens us to go out. It proclaimed the gospel. This is happening because Paul was in prison. He recognized that God was behind this, that God was using this. And guards being saved and the other brothers in Christ were being bold and speaking without fear. And the gospel was, was being proclaimed and it was changing lives. Verses 20 and 21 says, in, verse, in chapter 1, says, but that, but that with full Courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What was Paul's goal? Whether I live or whether I die, I want God to be honored. 
That was, that was what his life was about. That God would be honored whether he lives or whether he dies. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he spends the last part of this chapter encouraging the Philippian church to remain steadfast in the face of opposition and persecution that they were probably already facing but that would be coming. And we will read these verses. Chapter 1, verse 27. It says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, uh, hear of you that you are standing firm in the spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I I had and now hear that I still have. So what we see here is this encouragement to remain strong. That persecution is coming. This phrase, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That can be translated in Greek as only behave as citizens. Behave as citizens. But we need to understand citizens of what? Well, chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait, uh, and from it we wait a, a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, behave as citizens of heaven. This earth is not our home. He's saying this is what it means to walk worthy, uh, worthy of the gospel is live as citizens of heaven. So it says you're saved, basically another way to say it, if you know Christ, you claim, you claim the name of Christ, live like it. Act like it. Which, we need to be told that a lot. I know I don't. Not, not I need to be told. I don't, I don't do that, that's what I'm saying. But uh, we need to be told that. If you claim the name of Christ, act like it. This is kind of what, is what he's saying. Live Live out this, this reality, this nature that you belong to Christ and one day you're going to spend eternity with him. So live out to, to let your manner of, uh, of life be worthy of the gospel. Behave as citizens of heaven. Paul encourages them to be unified. He says stand together uh, with one another. And Paul is striving for the gospel. He says um, in verse 27, at the end of verse 27, Says with one at the end of it, with my, uh, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and this is what Paul would want for us as well. He want for Kelview Heights Baptist Church is that we would strive for the gospel side by side, not divided, but together, because we have a goal. We've been given a purpose as individuals, also as a church. We've been given a goal. We've been given a mission, and we do this side by side. He encourages them not to be frightened by your opponents. He says, don't be frightened. Don't be afraid of them. Uh, he says, by the way, the fact that you have opponents, he says, it's a sign of your salvation. So it's a sign of your salvation if you have opponents for taking a stand for Christ. And then he teaches also in this, in this chapter, he teaches that both suffering and faith both of them are gifts of God. Gifts of God. He said it's been granted to you not only to believe, but also to suffer 
for Jesus' sake. That's kind of a weird thing for us to hear in the United States of America. But most of the world throughout history understands this. Most of those who, um, throughout history, who name the name of Christ, they walk this. And I believe that we will too at some point. If we haven't already, we will at some point. But he says, it's been granted to you, not only that you, but that you believe, but also suffer for his sake. And what Paul's saying here is that we need to, we have to, we need to change the way we think. We need to change the way we see persecution. He says, Paul says it's a great privilege to suffer for the sake of Jesus. So the fact that he was in chains and all the things that he went through, he says it's a privilege to do this. And we have to change the way we think. It's not an American thought. It's not a natural thought. This is, but this is what Paul says and Paul experienced. And many brothers and sisters around the world experience that today, and they've experienced it throughout history. And I believe one day we will hear as well. And when that day comes, Paul says, it's a great privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ. He says, it's been granted to you to do this. It's like it's, it's, like it's, it's a good thing. I'm giving this to you. I'm granting this to you. I get That's hard for us to understand. But this is what Paul is teaching. It's been granted to us to believe in him and also to suffer for his name's sake. Uh, chapter 2. Chapter 2. We're going to read the first 11 verses there. And we're going to talk about Jesus is our example. So, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being the same of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one with and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, or have this mind in you, a different version may say, which is, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, that kenosis we talked about, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. And he humbled himself by being come, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the knee, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is our example. He is our example, is, is what, in, in what Paul is teaching here. A few things that he mentions here. Consider other needs, others' needs before our own. Again, that's not normal. That's not natural. This is something the Holy Spirit produces in us. But we consider others' needs before our own. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's what the world does. They try to befriend you or they try to get in with you, for, but it's, it's all about themselves. You understand what I, what I mean by that? It's like, okay, yeah, we can be friends, but I'm, there's something that you owe me as well. Uh, this is how the world works. Paul says, don't act that way. He says, genuinely love and care for others and put their needs ahead of your own. It says humility considers others more significant than self 
Again, we see that Jesus laid aside uh, the glory of heaven. He humbled himself and became obedient to the will of the Father. Why did he do this? To save sinners. Is he thinking of himself? No. He's thinking of his Father, first and foremost. He's also thinking about the reason he came, which is saving sinners. He is fully God. He never ceased to be God, yet he submitted himself to the will of the Father. So when, it came, when we talk about self-seeking, and James speaks about self-seeking and, and how dangerous it is and sin that comes from self-seeking, Jesus was thinking, he humbled himself, he was thinking of his Father, and he's thinking of others. He came to pay the penalty of our sin. So he laid aside the glory of heaven, humbled himself, and became obedient to the will of the Father. Therefore, God highly exalted him and said that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So some of these people that are very powerful in our world today, this applies to them too. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And his name has been highly exalted, highly exalted. And this is what Paul was was pointing at. But Jesus is our example of humbly submitting ourselves to the will of the Father and serving others. Because of this, he says, you are to be a light in the darkness. Chapter 2, verse 14. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. I can stop right there. We just, gotta stop. We gotta, we just need to stop grumbling and complaining all the time. I don't know why, but sometimes Christians can be some of the most miserable people. Always grumbling, always complaining. He says, don't do that. He says, do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering, Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. So he says, because of this, he says, we are to be, because of, of Jesus' example, he says, this is how you're to live. This is how you're to live, that we are to be lights in the darkness. Uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus, we're not going to read these verses, but in verses 19 through 30, Timothy and Epaphroditus are great examples of this. They were men who humbled themselves before God and lived a life worthy of the gospel, as we talked about. Epaphroditus almost died bringing help to Paul. He got really sick to the point of death. And, um, but in Timothy, and they, they risked their lives, their very lives, for the sake of the gospel. They did this. They were other examples of what he's talking about. They, they humble themselves for God and live their life worthy of the gospel. All right, chapter 3. Chapter 3. Paul warns of the problem of legalism. Of legalism. We'll read the first 11 verses. We're getting close. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for dogs. 
who look out for the evildoers. He's talking about false teachers. It says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Again, specifically Judaizers. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, the persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is warning them. He's warning them about, uh, about uh, the, this legalism that could be sneaking in if they weren't careful. He wanted them to recognize it. And what he's speaking of here, he says Christ's righteousness comes only by faith. It doesn't come from anything else. It's by faith, faith alone. Paul rejoiced in the Lord and not his credentials. He mentions his credentials, but he's saying, I don't rejoice in that. I rejoice in Christ. And he got to the point, and by the way, his credentials were pretty good. I mean, his list of accomplishments... Uh, you stack him, it would stack up against anybody. He says, meaningless. That means nothing. He says, all, all is lost compared to knowing Christ and identifying with him through life and or death. He says, I want to identify with Christ. Even if that means I die for his sake, I want to identify with Christ. And this, whether it be by life or death, I want to identify and be identified with him. It's what he's teaching here. He's, his, his, Paul knows this and he's teaching this. Is that his salvation was not based on his credentials. But solely on God's grace. On God's grace. This is what he is staking his eternity on. It's the grace of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not all these other things that so many people look to. So many people look to. You talk to them and ask if they know the Lord. Like, well, I was baptized. I go to church, or you, know, you fill in the blank. We're going, well, that's great. Those are good things. But is your faith in Jesus Christ? This is what Paul is teaching. He's saying, all those things I count as loss compared to knowing Christ. And then we see that he, he talks about pressing forward. Heaven awaits. Verse 12, verse 12 through 21. So it's not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perf- perfect, but I press on to make it my own because, uh, because uh, Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any of anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this, that to you also. Only let us... Let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join me, join me, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according 
according to uh, the example that you have in us, for many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is, is uh, destruction. Their God is their belly, and their glory is the shame. With minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him uh, even to subject all things to himself. What Paul is saying here is I press forward knowing that heaven awaits. Eternity awaits. So based on what we read in verses 1 through 11 where Paul says, I count everything as loss. Even all those credentials, all those good things that I did, they were, according to the world, they were good things. He says, I count those things as loss. Based on that mindset that he wants to be identified with Christ, he said, I press on. I move forward. This is what we're to do as believers. We're to move forward. He says, forgetting the past, the bad. Everybody has a past. Everybody's done things they regret that are in the past. He says, I forget those things. There's been... Paul had a lot of accomplishments. So Paul did a lot of bad. He also had a lot of accomplishments. He said, I'm putting those things, I'm forgetting the past, and I'm moving forward toward the goal. And this goal is to be identified and become more like Christ. That's what the pursuit of his life was about. Proclaiming the gospel, honoring God, becoming more like him, forgetting those things behind, and moving forward. So we're to press on. Keep moving forward. The journey of a believer ends up in eternal glory in the presence of Christ. So we do this until the day that we die or Christ comes again. And one day we continue to press on, forgetting the past, move forward, move forward, move forward. And where does that journey end? It ends in glory. That's where the journey ends. And in heaven, in the presence of Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. In heaven, no more pain, sorrow, or suffering. We'll be in the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how, this is how Paul was motivated. This is how he was able to do what he did. Is he had his eyes fixed on Christ. He knew that one day this is where that journey ends. He knew that he was a citizen of heaven that we're just passing through here. This is not our home. Paul understood this. He says, I forget all those things. And move forward. Keep moving forward. And one day, that journey ends up in heaven. Paul is an example for us to imitate. And he even says that, imitate me. That's pretty bold. I wouldn't want to tell people to imitate me. Paul's like, do what I do. Why? Because he was, he was becoming more like Christ. Uh, he, was, he was becoming more and more like Christ. He says, do what I do. And then finally, we finish chapter 4 with a couple of exhortations. In verses 4 through 9, chapter 4, verses 4 through 9, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Again, imitate me, and the God of peace will be with you. 
first exhortation we see here is talking about prayer. Talk about prayer. He says, first of all, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's a command. He says, we are to be people who rejoice in the Lord. Again, life's not always perfect. We rejoice anyways. Then he says, be anxious for nothing. And what he's talking about here is saying, entrust your life to your loving father. We have no, and it's hard. I, I get that. We all, sometimes, some people battle with it worse than others. But this anxiety is a real thing. It's a real thing. He says, be anxious for nothing. But he says, rather than being anxious, he says, present your request to God with thanksgiving. The peace of God will guard your hearts. And what we see here is that thanksgiving is key in having peace in life. This is how we have peace. If you're struggling with anxiety, begin to thank God for anything and everything. It'll change the way you think. Again, what are you doing? You're thinking about things that are good, things that are true, things that are the list that was given in, chapter, in verse 8. And we begin to think on those things. And, we're thanks, and we come and we present our request with thanksgiving. This is, this is how we can have peace in our hearts. In, the, in this world of turmoil, it's crazy, we can still be at peace with God. We can experience the peace of God. I guess it would be a better way to say that. So thanksgiving is the key to peace in life. So in those moments where you're feeling anxious, some of you do. Uh, I think we all do, but some do more than others. In those moments, begin to thank God for anything and everything, big and small. It'll, give us, it'll help you. Have peace in your heart. And then verse 11. Not that I'm speaking a beat in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to, to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He says, that's the secret. That's how I'm able to be content. It's Christ who strengthens me. He said, I, I understand what it's like to have plenty. I understand what it's like to have nothing. He says, and I can be content in both. I've learned. So a couple of things we see is that we are to be content wherever, wherever we are in whatever situation we may find ourselves in, we are to be content. This is, Paul who's, this is what Paul did. Contentment or maybe being satisfied, it's another key to peace in life, saying I'm okay. If I have a lot, don't have enough, I'm okay. I'm good with that. This is where God has me, and I trust him. That is the secret of being content, and, it, and it's something that is learned as well. Paul says, I've learned this. He's experienced it. He's experienced all those things. Um, he wrote this from prison. It's like, I'm in prison. I can be content. And so contentment, it, it can be learned, but it's another key of peace in life. So thanksgiving and contentment. If we could be thankful people and be content with where God has us, it'll change our life. Would it not? We worry about so many things and we get so entangled in so many things. What if we were just content and we were thankful people? And we didn't argue and grumble and complain all the time. We'd be different. We'd be different. He said, and Paul says we can be content with Christ who strengthens us. And so just kind of a, a thought, really quick, one sentence from every chapter to wrap up. 
chapter 1. It says, stand firm in the face of opposition. He's telling, it, he's telling us, stand firm in, that, in the face of op- op- opposition. Don't be afraid. And he says, remember, it's a great privilege to suffer for Christ's sake. So we need to change the way we think. It's a privilege. And, and Paul understood that, and he was living it at the time. Chapter 2. Follow Christ's example in humbling ourselves, considering others before ourselves, and in obedience. Jesus is our example. Follow that example. Humbling, considering others, and be obedient. Chapter 3. Paul tells us to press on, to forget the past, remembering that you are a citizen of heaven. That your journey, that we're just passing through. The journey ends in eternity. Journey ends in glory. And so remember that. It says all the things, whether it be bad things in the past, whether it be good things in the past, he says forget those things, move forward, day in, day out, remembering that you're a citizen of heaven. And then chapter 4. Rejoice, be thankful, and be content. That would change, that would change us if we'd be people who rejoice, if we were thankful and content. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. This is great gain. Godliness with contentment. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you so much for allowing us to be here today. And thank you for your word and how it teaches us. And I pray that you would help us. Uh, there's so much in Philippians. We, weren't even, we were just scratching the surface of it. But God, I ask that you would help us to become more like you. I, I pray that you would help us to change the way that we think. That we would see persecution and things like that as a privilege. That we were, it was granted to us not only to believe, but also to suffer for the sake of Christ. And as Paul was experiencing it at the time and throughout his life after he came to know you, um, the persecution that came, uh, he saw it as a privilege. I pray that you'd help us to change the way that we think. I pray that we would be people who are thankful, people who rejoice, people who are content. That we'd be people who, don't, who aren't grumbling and complaining all the time. Lord, we'd look different. We'd look different than the world. And uh, we want to look different than the world. We want to be a light. And I pray that you'd help us to do that. Do you help us uh, to uh, live a life in such a way that our words and our actions would match, that we reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ? That is our mission. That is our goal. I pray that you'd help us in this. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.